Hey guys, Jack here. Just one quick announcement. Uh, a reminder that our live League Finder event with Thinking Poker uh, in the New York City area is coming up this March 25th and 26th. Uh, for more information about that opportunity, head to our website, justhandspoker.com slash thinkingpokernyc. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in and enjoy this week's episode. So how did you get into poker coaching originally? So it was after Black Friday where I was like, I need to do something outside of poker. And that was a pretty, like, for lack of a better word, journey, long journey of bouncing around from thing to thing. Like, I went from investing to computer science to trading options to a few other things. And then eventually I just kind of hit on education. It was like that aha, you know, eureka moment where it's just I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I was really passionate about it. So I thought a hey, pretty cool way to practice what I read in books. And uh, that's uh, basically how it started. So did you hit on education more broadly as a area of study and then decide to use poker as a medium to practice it? Or did you always have coaching poker in mind as term, in terms of how you wanted to go about educating someone about something? Uh, uh, so my interest in education was didn't have anything to do with poker initially. I was, right before education, I was really into politics. And eventually I was basically just like, fuck this. Nothing's going to change with politics. It's a stupid system. And then I found... Like, oh, huh. <laughs> and then I just found education. I'm like, all right, this is kind of a better way to create change. Not that it was more of like a logical thing. I mean, the feeling I had that I wanted to do education was just... I wasn't like me logically breaking it down. It's just, this is what I really want to do. I just, I just felt that way. But my roots of like wanting to create change and help and all that started with politics. And then I became kind of disenfranchised, that's the right word, with it. And uh, education kind of filled that role. I personally get a lot of satisfaction out of teaching poker, you know, but coming from coming from a, a place where you're interested in politics and there's, it's it seems just from the way you're talking about it as though there's some sort of altruistic motive behind that uh does, does that get satisfied from coaching poker in your experience uh yes not as fully as uh doing other stuff but the first three or four years that i've done it, it was very satisfying i mean i i mean it still is today and what was really interesting is just reading this you know, reading different techniques and applying them and having them work and then having kind of sessions to kind of reflect on and analyze and the same way you would like a hand history in a poker tournament, you know, I was analyzing coaching sessions and mm -hmm. um, right. <laughs> teaching people how to think rather than like how to play a hand specifically was really rewarding. I've developed close relationships with students that I coached like two, three years ago. 
um, and getting people interested in education and like the whole self-improvement, self-development stuff through my coaching has been really uh, fulfilling as well. Man, I just hate self-improvement and that type of stuff. Really unsettling yeah, to hear. I, I don't like that word, but <laughs> I don't know if you're being sarcastic, but I don't like the word self-improvement. I'm, I'm be- he was definitely being sarcastic. <laughs> okay. What, how, what, what don't you like about uh... Uh, I just, well, there's negative connotations with it, but, but and I really just feel like it's basically just learning, but there's all the, like the self-help, self-improvement and people, some people have like negative connotations, like doing self-improvement means you have a problem. Not this guy. yeah yeah it it definitely like i obviously like when i tell people i love thinking about that stuff all the time i never frame it in those words because it is kind of a a taboo word you know self-improvement or self-help uh george carlin has a great thing great like stand-up thing about self-help oh man I, i gotta see it i love carlin yeah he's probably my favorite comedian ever um yeah, he has one that's all about self-help. But <laughs> I'm absolutely going to watch that right after this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> let, let, let us let us know if you liked it. I'm going to have to re-listen to it again. It's, it's been too long since I've heard some Carlin. Um, yeah, we can uh, link to it in the show notes. Yes, we can. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 an integral part of my life, and it to me, it's like hard for me to separate, like the type of work you would do for poker from just like general self-improvement and like a different mindset to life, which I'm sure, I don't know if you, like if you have a student and it seems like they're, they're not generally like, you know, analyzing how to make themselves happier, how to improve their lives. Like it's kind of hard to get them to spend like the right type of time studying poker without that kind of mindset there first. I don't know if you have experienced that, but when I'm like explaining things to students, it's, you know, the type of work that to do to like get yourself better at poker is like the same type of mindset, the same type of discipline to get yourself better at any other thing or to, you know, live a happier, more fulfilled life. Right. And I've kind of struggled with how to teach that because one, people are paying me for poker stuff and a lot of people are close minded to this stuff. So sometimes I'm not able to bring it up. And I feel like in the ways I've been most effective with this is just sharing my like enthusiasm, like cultivating a friendship with the person or like a relationship with the person I'm talking with and sharing my enthusiasm about podcasts or books or things I'm into. And that's kind of contagious. And they perhaps read books or read articles I link to after the session or something like that, it's, it is rare that I turn a coaching session towards that area and, and I rarely do it and B, it doesn't usually go that well when I do. Uh, so I kind of have to take like the backdoor approach with a lot of people. I do think that while improving, you know, for lack of a better word, in those areas is key to improving your poker game. I do think improving at poker sort of, they're almost the same thing in a way. 
like you can't do one. It's it's really hard to do one without doing the other. Uh, I think it's hard to improve at poker without like improving generally at like, you know, being happy and coping with, you know, the ebbs and flows of life uh, and thinking more rationally and separating emotion from the poker game. Poker table, if you can accomplish that, I think that's going to have effects in those other areas of life that, you know, someone might not have been receptive to speaking in those terms, but the lessons being learned from a, like through a lens of poker uh, are accomplishing the same thing. Uh, and I, I definitely think there are also probably cases where poker is not an appropriate area to improve those things. Just, you know, I, I think maybe especially for a professional, which I think a lot of our students are in some ways professional or at least think of themselves as professionals, even if they're not deriving their entire income from poker. Right. So what what are some of your guys' favorite books or most impactful books? I thought you'd never ask. Uh, <laughs> the Four Hour Work Week. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm rereading love that one. Yeah, rereading that again for like the millionth time right now, and it's I'm starting another business, and it's been really helpful to kind of keep those things as, in mind as it's just very easy to let you know the non-essentials kind of gravitate to and. What do you Spending. still? Uh-huh. What do you still implement from the book? So, it's much more of like a mindset. So mm-hmm. the the dreamlining type stuff. So for the listeners that haven't read the Four Hour Workweek yet, uh, first off, I highly recommend reading it. It's probably one of the most impactful books I've ever read in my life. Um, it's the concept of like writing down what your like dreams are and what kind of your your goals are, and then defining what you need to do to get there. But then also. Uh, defining like the worst things that could possibly happen on the path to getting there to like, and the idea being that like when you really write out and think about everything that's involved uh, and everything that could potentially go wrong, well, all of those things are fixable and it's, you know, life is too short to not kind of go for what you really want to spend your time doing. So I, I find that helpful. It just has like a mindset of like always making sure I'm spending my time doing the things that, you know, bring me joy and make me feel like I'm living a happy and fulfilled life. Um, I think a good combo to that, the dreamlining stuff, is uh, the book So Good They Can't Ignore You. Oh, I have to check that out. It is about... The book is is based on the premise that like following your passion is bullshit, <laughs> which is really interesting. And he goes through like intel- basically like intelligent forms that like chasing your dream and like shot taking um so the idea of like following like quitting your job to follow your passion may or may not be a good idea based upon like your career capital career capital and the new venture you're exploring so he has this one story of this chick who quits her like well-paying job to become a yoga instructor, but she's starting at the absolute bottom, has shown no ability to actually earn any income. And she's taking like incredible risks to do this. And she's like following her passion, but she has no skill or ability. So it's like kind of an unintelligent way to do it. And the approach that he kind of likes is building career capital, career capital, and the job you already have 
and use that to like buy freedom or buy time, which are kind of the same thing. So he goes through stories of people who build career capital in their job and they're able to either A, work from home, which saves some time, or B, work less hours, and then they could pursue side projects, or C, build up enough capital to actually take shots more intelligently. Um, but he doesn't believe in like people blindly kind of following their passion without you know, some prior showing of success or anything. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, I think... Like if, if you kind of brought that to Tim Ferriss, what he might say is like, well, if you're not able to, you know, greatly succeed in a specific career and like that doesn't necessarily have to be what you like quit your job to do and, you know, outlines like ways to, you know, obviously this was written, I think, in 2004 and I think people have become a lot more confident about these things and there's a lot more competition and things like drop shipping, but basically ways to make, you know, enough money that as long as you're like outside of a New York city or San Francisco, you can live very comfortably and, you know, find out a way to make money that doesn't take a lot of time and then spend the vast majority of your time doing other stuff. And that's kind of where the four hour work week is derived from. It's not doing four hours of work a week, but it's doing four hours of work for your muse a week, which is what gives you the income to, you know, live. Yeah. That's a pretty cool idea. Like, uh, Carlos Welsh kind of living in a van for three well, years. It's, it's not really like that. I don't, I, have, have you read the book, Daryl? Yes, but like four years ago or something? Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he talks about how, you know, on, again, this is 2004, so it might be a little bit different now, but on, you know, $1,000 a month in a place like Argentina, you can live like a king. Right, or, yeah. I mean, and just doing things in a smart way, like staying at Airbnbs, and I don't know. There's There's... There's a lot of ways that I, I could also personally attest to that in a lot of parts of the world you can live very well uh, for not a lot of money. And I'm sure there's ways to, as long as you're outside the major city, BC's talking about doing this in major cities around the world. I'm, you know, there's ways to live very well in the United States for not a lot of money. Right. Yeah, I live in New York City for not a lot of money. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, that can be hard. done. That's hard to do. Yeah, I guess maybe not a lot of money is... Uh, Maybe other people would not consider my expenses to be not a lot of money, but I think a lot of people would probably be surprised to find out, you know, how low my expenses are. That being said, I'll I'll just say for the four hour work week, I think like Zach, you gave a nice description, but I think there's actually a lot a lot of other things to that book other than the sort of dreamlining thing, which are maybe sort of more nuggets, uh, but are you know really valuable and, and worth checking out. I'm not as big of a reader as Zach, but I've actually found, I mean, this is less, uh, less career oriented, but we, we were talking just about books that have been influential and, uh, Zach and I are both musicians and I've always found a lot more stress, uh, career wise, passion wise, I guess, uh, in that area of my life than in poker. And one book that's really helped me just generally dealing with stress and success. Oh, wait, uh, hold on. So you've had more stress in creating music, uh, being a musician than in poker? Yes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Can you explain uh, this to me? Yeah, li- I, likewise I for me too. I don't know anything about music, but uh, so yeah, go ahead. 
Well, I think I'll, I think the main reason is just how I've always looked at myself, and I've always looked at myself first as a musician, and you know, for most of my life, not at all as a poker player, and then, you know, in the last seven or eight years, to varying degrees, also a poker player. So I, I mean, I think that is the number one reason because you know my sort of self-identity and self-worth was tied up in how successful I was or, you know, how I perceived my music to be in quality. So I think that's the number one reason. I think another aspect is that, in my opinion, you know, once you sort of are in a financial situation where your poker results don't have, you know, your short-term poker results don't have drastic effects on your financial well-being, Music is a much more stressful endeavor than poker because it's just so much more poorly defined in terms of how to be successful, what does success look like, uh, how do you measure the quality of music. Those are questions that you have to decide whether the answers are important to you in the first place and also uh, how you're going to evaluate it. How do you measure the quality of music? So I have this problem with writing, so maybe this is similar when I am writing, I don't know if anything I do is good. And the only way I get to evaluate is by feedback I get, which I'm still not sure how to feel about the feedback either. The book I'm sort of dancing around is called Effortless Mastery. And it's written by a really fantastic uh, jazz piano player named Kenny Werner. Is that what you play, piano? I play piano. Uh, Zach is a trumpet player, but it's a book for all musicians. Jazz or not, uh, I would say the the target audience would be professionals who are unsatisfied with their careers. Or students. But I think, I think it's, like, it's written for like people in jazz programs in college. I don't know. I disagree, but it, it sort of doesn't matter because the, the thing I was going to say is that any musician should read it. And I think it's worth considering reading if you're not a musician at all. Basically, the conclusion is that you just can't think about you know, the quality of what you're doing. And you just have to sort of trust your, I guess, inner godliness, like your sort of Buddha nature. He... Uh, has a different word for it, but trust that if you sort of work diligently and in a stress-free way and just allow the music to come out of you naturally, that it will be beautiful. Hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, I can see that with writing. If you just consistently write all the time and do it, I mean, in a low-stress environment, I think you're going to get better. But if you're always worried about getting better, I can see that being pretty negative. Yeah, something he writes is, Jack, I don't know if you're thinking about this, but like he talks about how in, when he has students, like it's like, I, I can't write, because it's also not just about you know getting better at piano, also about like kind of composition. And I think this is very much relates to you know writing words as well as writing music. Like students will say in a master class, like, you know, I'm having trouble writing anything good like, I really don't like what I'm writing. Like, how do I create music that, that I resonate with? And he's like, don't worry about that. Try and write two or three, it's two or three, like, bad songs every day. And I promise you that after, like, a week, you'll write a good one. You know? Well, actually, he has 
He has another method that I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recommends just actually just writing random notes on a page and then just starting to edit. I think it's it's not necessarily an easy... It, it's not easy to translate that to writing since I think it's a lot easier to just sort of randomly put notes on a page than randomly put words on a piece of paper and then go from there since music is, a, I think, a much more abstract thing in the first place. But, I, th- I mean, it's, you know, you can draw from that what you will. That no, is another I, method. I definitely try to do that sometimes, like just write without thinking and then eventually you kind of stumble onto something good and you and you kind of go from there and um jack do you have the same problems with uh music creation like the self-identity and knowing whether you're getting better or not or is that the same reason you find it stressful yeah i i guess i've always found you know just sort of randomly i i don't know that there's much to it i've always found writing music to be a lot easier. Oh, wait, I think I'll, I'm, you were already talking, you were already talking about piano. I meant sex. Yeah, sorry. that's, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, I mean, I kind of agree with Jack. I, like I started my undergrad degree in the conservatory for jazz trumpet and for a variety of reasons ended up switching to jazz composition. And I feel just, I'm a much better writer and arranger like that comes very naturally to me and I've always felt like really good about a lot of the work I've put out where trumpet, I still feel like I don't really know how to play it very well. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I really like writing and I haven't, unfortunately I did a, a lot of writing over the last like kind of two years, but since I've graduated, I've done, I think absolutely no writing. I've spent my, my precious time when I'm doing music things like, playing with Jack or just doing a lot of kind of solo trumpet technical practice. So I, I definitely miss it. And now I, I was working, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but I was, I was doing a nine to five internship for uh, a travel blog and I signed up to do 12 weeks and I, I lasted about five. So now I have kind of my time back to myself and I'm started, am happy to starting next week, uh, get into a routine of, of writing regularly again. Right. And, um, did I answer your question? I'm sorry, because I, yeah, no, you basically said it was (laughs) the same thing as, uh, Jack. And, um, so do you stress, does it just keep you from not doing it or is it while you're doing it, you find it stressful or I think music is a lot less stressful for me than Jack. It used to probably be like, very very stressful when I was a lot worse at playing the trumpet and like every time I played like I felt like my face hurt and I felt like I was like terrible but now that I feel <laughs> a lot more confident in like how my tone is and you know my ability to like relate to other musicians and improvise um I think this a lot of the stress for me personally comes from like playing without tension and that's been like a really big goal of mine to like not hold tension to my body when I play it's also coming out of you know, Effortless Mastery has also been a really valuable book in my life. Um, and I kind of, that that idea is very much in there. Um, and I'm also just thinking about tension in general because I have a kind of history of lower back injury and I've had a lot of chronic pain issues in my life. So I've had stuff that's come from the trumpet with some shoulder injuries. And, you know, I've always thought, okay, like if I can play this instrument without tension, I'll be able to just 
you know, this will be a cathartic thing I could do for the rest of my life where I think most trumpet players, even the really good ones play with so much tension in their bodies. And it's, it's just so clear, uh, where actually the teacher who I'm studying with now, I think is, you know, one of the best, most unique trumpet players in the world. And she, uh, I think she, I can't think of anyone who, you know, plays with less tension than her and has done, you know, more work into, into that. So I think the stress for me is like very mental and knowing that like, I'm still so far from my goal of like playing without tension. Right. I think it's interesting, the parallels with effortless, effortless mastery and coaching. So if I am coaching someone and I, and I know that they're working hard, but I also see that they're doing it from a place of scarcity or anxiety or stress, I just don't expect them to do well at all. Like, I'm not looking at that person like, oh, this guy's working hard. He's going to start crushing. I'm like, this guy's going to start downswinging. And uh, it's just a really hard mindset to learn from. It's really hard to, it's really hard to get value from the study when that's your mindset. And it's really hard to play well when uh, you're feeling like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a, a sort of comparison in music is that I think a similarity and a difference between music and poker is that in, in some regards, I think you mostly in, in music, I think you have to be basically prepared before your performance. There's not it, it happens in real time, especially in jazz, where there's an improvisatory element uh, that's happening in real time. There's not really any time for thought. So you are best served, I think, if you are uh, in a state where you are playing without you know, having conscious thought interrupting. Uh, poker, I, I think, is a little different because there, there's more of a correct answer. Uh, in a lot of spots, and a lot of times we can sort of think about a situation and arrive at that answer. But at the same time, uh, I think one, you know, having the practice and preparation to be in that point and for it to be easy to arrive at the answer is going to be a hugely critical in being successful in the situations. And also, I think you know, sort of the mental game aspect of it. Uh, if you, you might be capable of making the correct decision, but if you have sort of unresolved stresses weighing in on those decisions, I think you're much more likely to sort of voluntarily veer away from, you know, the path that you would have otherwise chosen to be the correct path. Yeah. Um, right. And from the study aspect, I just don't think, you can learn from what you're doing in an unbiased way when you're coming at it from a point of stress and anxiety and fear. Um, same thing with playing. So are there any parallels with uh, music to poker for you guys? Oh, yeah, so many. I wouldn't uh, think there was any. So Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've, I know there was some, but I just can't think. Anyways, go ahead. I've struggled to find them personally, but oh. I... I'd be curious to hear what you say, Zach. So, I mean, I, there's definitely differences in, like, the way you would improvise in a jazz context and the way you improvise with poker, but in kind of the general just, like, flow you're seeking after, it's it's definitely much more of a pure flow. Like, I, I regularly practice meditation, and I'd say, like, improvising in a jazz context is, like, 
much more close to that feeling than like staring someone down on the turn. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's definitely similar, you know, like the type of just like mindset, like calm, collected, focused in the moment that I, you know, try to be throughout my life, I think comes out best when I'm doing kind of like doing one of my passions, whether it's like music or poker. So I think kind of the, the improvisation that is required in poker to me is very a very similar skill set than to like the improvisation required when playing like jazz and other improvised music. Right. And does this have to do with focus too? Do you feel like very much so, helps? yeah. Like a a big thing that like I, I think my I mean meditation obviously is a big part of it, but I think my like regular like morning practice routine is like hugely beneficial to me for like the level of focus and discipline that it sets me up for throughout the day. And yeah, I think that like that type of focus with music directly translates to poker. And there's been times in my life where I've like been studying poker a lot more than I'm practicing or performing music. And I find that it's like cathartic. And as long as I'm doing something creative and in like this focus and discipline way, it feeds off each other regardless of the actual like, um, thing that I'm doing, whether it's poker or music or something else. Yeah, I feel like poker is kind of interesting because it's, the, for a while, the only competitive thing I did. I mean, it's the only competitive thing I did for money, and it's a weird game in that, you know, with music, it's an uninterrupted thing, you know? But if you're playing poker tournaments, you go just periods where there's just nothing really to do of significance and there's all these breaks in between and like you know no one's like gonna no one's gonna like while you're playing trumpet just like steal like thousands of dollars in equity from you like Like, break your flow so it's it's a very difficult uh game to achieve flow in and uh it's interesting practicing with other skills so when i got into chess last year I noticed that any time I lost focus and didn't try, like I made a mistake and the mistake is like right there in your face. Like there's no denying it. There's no saying you played well or you just got unlucky, ran to the top of his range or like if you just didn't hit the river or whatever, like you make <laughs> yeah. a mistake in chess, like you lose. It's just very, and that has very strong correlation or causal link between that and focus which you don't necessarily get in poker like you could just you could not focus and win tournaments i've done (laughs) i've done that many times and uh or play a hand well in the in the vacuum or whatever or win a hand or whatever um and i imagine it's the same with music like if you lose focus especially if you're not like extremely good that's just gonna mess you up basically and you're gonna notice it immediately yeah i think music is interesting because i i think it's uh there's a similar phenomenon but i wouldn't necessarily describe it as like focus necessarily uh there's a very interesting feeling uh and it's really one of the worst feelings in the world Uh, that I've ever experienced when you're sort of channeling something and then all of a sudden it goes like it goes away and it's normally not like 
Uh, it rarely happens to me playing by myself. It's mostly playing with other people. And there's just this like feeling of emptiness that comes uh, when something that like was being created like is no longer being created for some reason. And yeah, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to describe. But so, so when you say you're like channeling something, does that mean like you're just getting good ideas or a good feel for the music and then it just disappears and you're left kind of clueless as to what to do? I'm trying to like relate to this. I don't know if that's a bad interpretation. I would try and sort of conceptualize it more as just like an emotional state that's like a result of the music in some way. So it's hard for me to tell you why it would change. Uh, but I, I do think it's, you know, directly related with the, you know, quality is not a great word, but the impact the music is having, uh, at least personally. Why would you use quality instead of impact? Why would you use impact instead of quality rather? Uh, I don't think either of them are quite the right word. I don't know what the right word is. I think quality is a decent word because if if you sort of think of it semantically as like uh, you you can you can sort of stretch quality to mean a lot of different things, uh, but it doesn't really mean anything on its own, which is why I think it's both a good word and a bad word in this context. Uh, so it however you define quality. Uh, you know, I think the way I'm defining quality with music, which is not something I necessarily know how to articulate very well, uh, this feeling coincides with the reduction in quality. Uh, impact, I think, is is a component of that quality. So I guess I'm giving a more specific word that's a component of the quality, but it's not, you know, it. That's interesting. And... Um... Is it like a flow state? Is that, is it like being in a flow state and just getting kind of like zapped out of it or something? Maybe. I've never been a very good meditator. Uh, I've tried. I'm currently in a state where, or, or a period of my life where I am trying to meditate somewhat regularly, but I, I've never been very good at it. So this is my only real uh, experience with this sort of change of state so it's hard for me to compare it to anything right and huh. is your is your guys approach to music analytical and logical or is it because i i would view music as a layman as more of a intuitive creative process rather than analytical and logical there's it's definitely a lot of both <laughs> um i think personally i've always come about music from like way like there's, you know, you could come about it with both ways and they both have different places where they're valuable. And I think I've always been a lot better at like the analytic side and like reading music and sight reading music as opposed to like playing by ear and listening. I also just didn't really start playing music seriously until a lot later in my life compared to a lot of my peers, like Jack included. Um, but yeah, I feel like the intuitive thing and the playing by ear and kind of playing in the moment and not necessarily being aware of, you know, if the line I'm outlining, if the, the, the 
the series of notes that I'm playing on the trumpet outlines a specific chord and more just like hearing the notes that I'm playing in real time definitely produces like a better kind of end result and as well as like a, is a better experience like for the creator while I'm doing it versus if I'm thinking like, okay, now I'm going to play this type of scale over X, Y, or Z. But there's definitely a time and a place to think about playing this scale over this chord uh, and to kind of practice that. But yeah, I think, I think it's definitely both. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. It's definitely both. I mean, I think like there is an analytical aspect that is sort of built in just based on the sort of way sound works. Uh, So, you know, the way our ears perceive sound is based on, you know, science and wave structure. And that has implications in terms of the types of sounds that we have traditionally found pleasing. And so there is a science there. And I I think because that science exists, there is an analytical framework within which it's very logical and easy to learn about music and, and, you know, expand your horizons about music through a more analytical, you know, perspective. But I think most musicians get too caught up in that. Or especially jazz musicians. Uh, most jazz musicians get too caught up in that, and I, I think the intangibles and the sort of human element are much more important. Right. And is that what you play? Uh, jazz? Are you, is that what you're into? Jazz? Yeah. Uh, that's that's really what I play almost exclusively at this point. It's it's really the music I'm much I'm most passionate about by a, a huge margin. Uh, Zach is more of a Zach. I think Zach is happy playing a lot of different types of music, uh, which I think is awesome. But I'm really kind of a jazz head. You guys are going to have to send me some music after this. I'll All right. Oh, by the time this podcast releases, I would have, I'll have released at least one video for my new, like kind of big band album, doing some arrange big band arrangements uh, of the music of Michael Jackson. So yeah, I could send you some of that. Cool. Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson is pretty good, aside from being a child molester. Well, uh, acquitted. Right? <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, yeah. We don't always... have to get into like trusting the justice system or not. Uh... <laughs> I always just feel a little weird listening to this music. Do you also feared, feel weird laughing at Woody Allen? Uh, I haven't. I don't know if I've watched many Woody Allen movies. Well, from a com- comedic perspective, I highly recommend it. From like a not supporting, very likely child molester perspective, I, I can't say I support it. <laughs> right. But I'm a huge I'm a huge Woody Allen fan. Cool. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of perfect people to consume art from. <laughs> yeah. uh, so. Right. I had I, a feeling. I had a feeling you were going to turn this interview around on us, by the way. Yeah, um, no, being... <laughs> no. Yeah, we need, we need to go back to, to Daryl questions. We've made a whole Google Doc, and we've only asked right. you like two of them. So. Right. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I'm used to asking questions and listening. So yeah, keep going. Well, we wanted to ask you about your – so, I mean, anyone who has been to your website knows that you offer life coaching and uh, it's it's free apparently. We just wanted to know more about what that looks like and what that experience has been like for you. 
Right. Uh, so I'm struggling to find a name for it because I don't know if it's exactly life coaching. So the whole idea behind it for me is I want to help people build real skills that help in a broad area of subjects like cognitive skills, emotional skills, social skills, um, rather than and I think life coaching is another term that has a lot of negative connotations. Fuck, I got off track with this. Go to your other questions. So, so I mean, repeat your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, just yeah, repeat the question. I forgot it. Uh, so what does is, what is this life coaching look like? And, you know, what has the experience of being a life coach been like for you? Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll use the word life coach. I call it like problem solving sessions, but yeah, we'll use that word. Um, so what it's like is you pick something you want to work on and sometimes people don't know and sometimes they do. And sometimes sessions start with what people think they want to work on and it goes into something more important they want to work on. And it starts with me me listening a lot and asking lots of questions first and then helping you like either plugging leaks in your decision-making process and like explaining what those are, relating some stories, um, trying to understand your situation fully, giving you some different options or different perspective. And uh, that, that about covers it. I mean, that's, the main gist of it is that a good answer for that part of the question it sounds like it's the answer so yeah it sounds like yeah um so i'm gonna sign up next week it's still free right oh yeah mm -hmm. absolutely great um there was a second part to your question that i forgot i'm very forgetful well I'm more interested, I think, in another question we had. Shoot. So you're a coach of, you know, several to many things. Uh, but, you know, have you ever seeked coaching in your life, in your poker career? And have you enjoyed being on that side of the coaching student relationship? Uh, yeah. So I've had uh, Elliot Rowe, the hypnotherapist. He has been awesome. And I've recommended him to every poker player I talk to. Um, he just, I mean, the first session with him is just pretty insane. Um, so when people think hypnotherapy, they think like shit they see in movies and, and all that. But really it's like just being in a super relaxed state where he's able to get you to respond or uh, react more subconsciously. And he gets doing so, he's able to get deeper into problems. And during the after the first session, first time I've ever experienced this in my life, only time I've ever experienced this in my life is I felt a huge weight like off of my shoulders. And I just felt lighter and felt really great. But as a caveat, he will tell you before the first session that it is very likely that you'll like bust like bust out crying during the session. And that happened to you? Yes, correct. Wow, it sounds like I really need to do this. That's crazy. <laughs> There's two types of reactions. There's one, 
I'm never fucking do that. I'm like, wow, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> Nothing in between? I'm sure there's in between. It's exaggeration. <laughs> like many things in life, I think I'm going to let Zach be my guinea pig here. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for uh, those of you that are listening that know us well, yeah, it's definitely, um, it's true. Zapped, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he's great for your poker game. And even if you don't want the hypnotherapy, like, me and him, me and him's not, that's ungrammatical. <laughs> when we do, when ungrammatical is probably not a word um, either. Uh, so when we do sessions, I kind of just run by ideas with him and get his thoughts because he's actually really, as I really pride myself on my ability to ask questions and spend a lot of time thinking about that. And he's really good at it and can really help you shift your perspective and think about things differently and uh, really challenge some of the shitty ideas you have. Well, I can't think of any reason we would want to become better at asking questions. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, we've, we've reached our saturation. Kind of have all the of, answers, yeah. yeah. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. No, yeah, we got there. I got there about two years ago, and it's, it's, it's been pretty smooth sailing ever since. Right, just crushing life. <laughs> Uh, well, Daryl, we really, really appreciate your time. We appreciate your poker knowledge, your experience as a coach, and your interest in our lives. Uh, we haven't talked that much about ourselves on these shows, although I think uh, our listeners have gotten to know us a little bit. But, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about that question of how does poker and how do poker and music relate, just in case I ever get asked to do an interview. I still haven't found a good answer, but I really enjoyed hearing Zach's. And yeah, for all those reasons and more, thank you so much for joining us. Cool. I wish I got to ask more questions. <laughs> so much well, more I wanted to know. Um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, talk, we'll talk during the life coaching, Daryl. Yeah. All right. All right. See you guys. Bye. Hi, Daryl.